We turn in the Old Testament to the prophet Amos, Amos chapter 2, reading the entirety of that chapter. Again, this is our sermon text for this Lord's Day. So God's holy and inspired word given to us, his people, give your attention to the reading of it, Amos chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kiriath, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all its princesses with them, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So we all share a favorite pastime, and this pastime is pretty universal to all ages and cultures, and this is the joy of criticizing others. Yes, as an armchair quarterback, that dolt of a coach should be listening to you. From the back seat, the driver does everything wrong. Watching the news isn't so much about keeping informed as it is laughing at and yelling at those knucklehead politicians. 
The honorable tradition of patriotism means bad-mouthing other countries. Women gossip about other mothers, and if they made a cup for Father's Day that said all other dads are losers, it would be a bestseller. And, of course, denominations seem to be created just to point out how other churches are so messed up. Yeah, nothing tickles us and tickles us quite like a good ragging on others session. And yet the Lord has a way of taking the things we enjoy and turning them back upon us, which he does brilliantly in Amos chapter 2. So we pause, as, as we paused at the end of chapter 1, we actually cut God off mid-sermon. Yeah, the opening oracle, or as it's been called, the great speech, covers the whole of the first two chapters of Amos. This is one long roar of the Lord thundering from Zion. And so far, we have seen the Lord bare his teeth against the nations. As the Lord of creation, he condemned those surrounding peoples for their inhumane and vile violations of natural law. Under the Noahic covenant, the Lord was especially judicial towards bloodshed. So he indicted and condemned these nations for their bloody war crimes. Violence against women as noncombatants, barbaric cruelty, and merciless human stealing. And in chapter 1, Yahweh issued five irreversible judgments against Syria and Tyre in the north, the Philistines on the west, Edom in the south, and Ammon on the east. And now he focuses his crosshairs on number 6, Moab, which is due east of the Dead Sea. Yet the covenant felony of Moab differs from the previous five. For Yahweh indicts Moab for burning the bones of the king of Edom for lime. What's this about? Well, we do not know the historical referent here, but to burn bones is not about human sacrifice. Rather, this is about disinternment. It is the removal of bones from a tomb, grave robbing essentially, Then the bones were cremated into a fine powder. But what's so heinous about this? Well, everyone knows that a basic morality is respecting the dead and their remains. Armies will pause hostilities so that each side will collect their dead for an honorable burial. Proper treatment of your enemy's dead and burial grounds is common sense decency. Thus, in the ancient world, most tombs were marked with engraved curses. Divine hexes were called upon any who would plunder the crypt. Yet Moab did more than just grave rob. He burned the royal bones, which was considered a most horrible post-mortem crime. If your bones were burned, your spirit, it was considered, was condemned to a restless wandering and torment in the netherworld. No rest in the grave. Moab then displays a terrible hubris as if he is godlike to dish out eternal punishments. Finally, Moab used the burned bone dust 
for lime, which was a key ingredient in plaster or whitewash. Now, to plaster is like painting your, the wall in your house. It's a common, mundane activity. For something as measly as plastering, Moab burned bones. This is like killing your neighbor's puppy to use its coat to sweep the floor. Thus, the Lord will send fire on Moab, and the kings and nobles will perish. The Lord's wrath has been published, and it will not fail. But with nation number six wrapped up, the Lord's roar now turns to the climactic number seven, Judah. Yeah, Moab, or Yahweh moves his wrath from the pagan nations to his own special people. His justice will not spare the sins of Judah. And this pinnacle seventh oracle very much resembles the first six. For three or four rebellions, the punishment is irrevocable. Yahweh will send fire to consume the fortresses of the capital. All of this matches the pattern for the nations. Yet the law code violations for Judah are very much different. The Lord prosecuted the nations via the common sense moral law, natural law. But Judah is brought to trial under the special revelation of Mosaic law. They spurned the Torah of the Lord. They did not keep his statutes. This is wholesale disobedience against the entirety of the Mosaic law, the stipulations of the covenant of Sinai. Yahweh rules the nations as God of creation, of common grace. But the Lord rules his people as king of a special covenant of Moses. Same God, but two different realms of his sovereignty. Where the outside nations are judged for war crimes, Yahweh arraigns Judah for their lies that led them astray, which refers to idolatry. Yeah, the lies are the deception of idols and all their devious trappings. The false prophets and salesmen of idolatry promise blessings aglore if you just bow to this figurine or offered incense to this wooden goddess. But it is the big lie. Nothing gods bring nothing blessings. But just as the fathers followed these lies, so has the present generation. Hence, the time of wrath has come. Yet, with this climactic seventh oracle, the Lord pulls a rhetorical surprise. Everyone knows that seven is God's favorite number. When seven is reached, the list is finished. Completion comes with seven. And remember that Amos's primary audience is Israel, <coughs> excuse me, in the northern kingdom. The congregation in the pews are the northern Israelites. And so far, the sevenfold woe oracle has condemned everyone on all sides of Israel. This lion sermon has the congregation of Israel then cheering and saying, Amen. To hear God rage against your horrible and despicable nations, this is like catnip. This is tailgating for the Israelites. Yeah, get them, God. 
Moab stinks, Ammon is a loser, and Judah is terrible. Rhetorically, these judgments lure in the self-righteousness of Israel. They pat themselves on the back. Those others are vile, but we're studs. We're so much better than they are. Tell the story, pastor. Finally, we good folk will be avenged over our barbaric and savage neighbors. The nations being judged would give Israel a dopamine hit of schadenfreude. That is, they would delight at the pain and suffering of the nations and feel self-satisfied and pleased with themselves. It would be an ego boost for them to hear about how bad the others are. And yet, as soon as the Lord has the Israelites cheering in the pews and dancing in the aisles, he does not say amen. The Lord does not end his sermon. The Israelites thought he was done, but the oracle continues on. Yahweh mixes up the number pattern. In addition to the common pattern of seven, there's a less frequent pattern in scripture of seven plus one. Just when the Israelites considered it to be finished, the Lord adds an eighth section uh, to the previous seven. For three and four rebellions of Israel, the Lord will not revoke judgment upon Israel. Now Yahweh aims his roar on the congregation of the north. The Israelites who puffed up their chest at being better are not so good. They too have been found wanting. Crimes and felonies sit heavy on the scales and there is no exemption for them. The Lord has strategically bombed the surrounding nations but he unloads his payload on Israel. For he condemns Israel, not for one sin or two, but for six to eight sins, depending on how you count them. The first felony is in verse 6. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for sandals. Now, most likely, this refers to selling into slavery, that is, debt slavery, Now, this was lawful under Moses in particular cases. For example, if a thief could not pay his punishment, that is restitution, he was sold into uh, slavery to work off his debt. Similarly, if you defaulted on your debt and had no money, you became a debt slave for a limit of up to six years to work off your loan. These were lawful under Moses. But in Israel... They sell the righteous. Now, the guilty could be sold as a form of punishment, but surely not the innocent. For cold, hard cash, they sell off those who've never committed a crime. And the needy who couldn't pay their loans, they are auctioned off for the price of a pair of sandals. Now, presumably, this means for a paltry debt. That is, the needy owed the price of sandals, let's say 50 bucks, but the loan shark sold them into slavery for this. This is predatory foreclosure. For greed, they sell the righteous poor. 
Next, they trampled the head of the poor into the dust. Now, this is a more general sin as it refers to the abuse and inhumane treatment of the vulnerable. It violates Deuteronomy 24, which says, You shall not oppress the needy of your brothers or the sojourner. Similarly, the next charge states, They turn aside the way of the afflicted or humble. Now, this echoes several laws of Exodus and Deuteronomy about not perverting justice for the lowly. This is the bullying of the humble. It deprives them of the right to the courts. The image here is of a person coming to the court to plead his case, but then a bully shoves him in the ditch, no access for you. And the next charge reads, a man and his father go into the same girl. Now, we're not completely sure, but this is likely a sexual sin of incest. In violation of the marriage and sex laws of Leviticus 18, this is a son sleeping with his stepmom or a father sleeping with his daughter-in-law. Such sexual perversion was labeled a depravity, and so it profaned God's holy name. For to profane God's holy name was a religious sacrilege, which happened by taking a false oath or violating an oath sworn in Yahweh's name. Thus, this perverse incest and or adultery broke the marriage covenant oath taken in the Lord's name. It's a sin against your fellow human and the very holiness of the Lord, which is much more serious. Sins against your neighbor are bad, but transgressions against the Lord are so much worse. Thus, the next two atrocities focus on repugnant worship. They do begin with civil crimes, though. Garments taken in pledge, this refers to seizing one's coat for a loan or a default. Now, the law strictly forbade creditors seizing the necessities of life for a monetary loan, and your outer cloak was a life essential. And wrongful seizure of amounts, wrongful seizure amounts to simple robbery. These are stolen coats. Next, there is wine acquired by fines. Now, under Moses, monetary fines were punishments imposed on the criminal to repay the victim. Fines did not go to the state or to the judge, but to, per, but to the person harmed by the crime for restitution. Here, though, the judges keep the fines for themselves, <clears throat> excuse me, and then they purchase wine with those fines. Thus, the victim gets nothing, while the judges or nobles take the money, and then spend it on wine, basically judicial robbery. But then the nobles and higher-ups take these stolen goods into worship. Now, it's not exactly clear what rituals are done here, that is, lying next to the altar and drinking in the temples. Now, these are probably some form of offerings or religious feasting. That is, part of the wine was poured out as a libation to God, and then they drank the rest. 
Yet it is a gross perversion to worship God with things you stole. You cannot offer to the Lord things acquired by crime and sin. This is a brazen violation of pure worship. Such defiled worship is not even considered worship. Thus the Lord says, in the house of their God. The Israelites might use his name, but it is not Yahweh that the Israelites worship, but it is a deity of their own creation. And for such covenant violations, the Lord's judgment will not be turned back. Therefore, to underscore the severity of their ingratitude and infidelity, the Lord recounts how much he's done for his people. He brought them out of Egypt in a mighty salvation. As a father, he led them and protected them during the 40-year desert trek. And it was the Lord who cleared out the Amorites to give the promised land to Israel. The grace and mercy of God has been lavished upon Israel, giving them salvation, life, and love. The Lord even supplied them a steady diet of prophets and Nazarites. Now, prophets preach the word to the people. They give them the opportunity to repent, and they intercede with God for reconciliation. Now, it is curious why Amos adds Nazarites here. He probably has Samson and Samuel in mind, who were lifelong Nazarites, who ruled Israel for a time. Either way, Nazarites were holy to God, kind of sort of quasi-priest, to do some special service. Yet, what did Israel do to these leadership gifts from God? They spoiled them. They forced the Nazarites to drink wine, which defiled them and ruined their service, and they muzzled the prophets. With lethal threats, they gagged and silenced the preachers of the word. The Israelites were unfaithful to the Lord, and they also canceled God's powerful word for true restoration. They divorced Yahweh, and they refused to take his phone call. Hence, nothing is left to do but judgment. The Lord will bring war upon Israel, and the Israelite army, which was a source of pride and confidence for the people, will lose terribly. All the expert warriors will fail at their very speciality. The strong will be overcome will be overcome by will not overcome by strength. The archers will not hit their marks. The swift will not be fast enough to get away, and the stoutest of heart will run away naked. Simply put, there will be no escape. No one will save his own life. The people trusted in the legs and the arms of men, but their trust will evaporate and die under a wave of God's overwhelming judgment. In that day, Israel will taste total defeat. And this is the true close to God's opening sermon. The amen comes at the end of verse 16. And the outline of the Lord's sermon was not based on seven, but on seven plus one. Thus, what is the effect of this surprising pattern? 
Well, to start with judging the nations, this sermon catches our attention and pulls us in by our favorite pastime. We love to listen how bad other people are. And for the Israelites, they had suffered under Syria and Ammon by their violence. They'd been abused by the Philistines, and they wrestled in jealousy with Judah for ages. To hear God chew out these foes is like a day at the spa. There's so much pleasure in feeling good about yourself to hear what evil losers are your enemies. Condemning can inflate our self-righteousness. It's like a drug to our egos. And yet, as soon as God has us comfortable in self-congratulation, he turns the oracle of judgment into a mirror. Yahweh says, see how wicked the nations are? Well, you are no better. Thus, in the New Testament, Peter tells us that God's judgment starts with the church. For sure, the nations are are kept for wrath, but the Lord begins his judgment with the church. As Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye, before you look, take the speck out of your brother's eye. Over and over in the New Testament, we are cautioned to be careful how we judge. For with, for with the judgment we pronounce, we will be judged. Judge not, and you will not be judged. For our problem is that we judge by appearances. We judge according to the flesh. Instead, we are told to judge ourselves, and we will not be judged. Thus, these oracles of judgment ought to be a warning for us. The moral law that speaks from Amos should cause us to humble ourselves in repentance. Sure, providentially, we've been spared the opportunity of war crimes, praise the Lord, but taking advantage of the vulnerable, acting in greed, sexual perversion, and defiling worship with offerings of sin? We're not immune from such things. Sure, we are not under the Mosaic law, but the moral law and the general equity of the Old Testament still speaks authoritatively to our consciences. We should not feel pleased with ourselves at the wickedness of Israel, but we should humble ourselves before the righteousness of God in repentance. For this oracle is not just about others, but it's speaking to us. And yet there's one key difference between this sermon for Israel and for us in the New Testament, namely the irreversibility of its punishment. The Lord's wrath was coming, and it could not be revoked. The Lord says it eight times. But in Christ, God's warnings of us in the law are always reversible. For Jesus has earned for us an enduring pardon. Yes, the word warns us and convicts us of sin, but it always summons us to repent for forgiveness. We approach the Father within the mercy of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. 
in the Lamb of God, the Father is both just and faithful to forgive all of our sins. When the Father does discipline us, he does so in love to restore us to himself and to conform us more to his Son. Thus, the warnings of the law always come to us founded upon the sweetness of the gospel, with the confidence of Christ's sure pardon and mercy. Sure, the law may roar, but Jesus hushes this against us, and he addresses us as our tender shepherd. In love, Jesus woos us to humble ourselves, and he coaches us with never-ending forgiveness. He gently deals with us according to his grace. By his sacrifice, Jesus reminds us that he has dealt with and put away all condemnation for us. In his faithfulness, Christ assures us that our sins cannot separate us from his redeeming affection that his grace is greater than our guilty consciences. Thus, the warnings of this sermon from Amos are meant to drive us ever deeper into the arms of Christ, to rest ever more in his salvation upon the cross. So then may we be careful how we judge. Let us judge ourselves and not others. And may we rejoice that Christ loved our sinful selves so that his mercy is ever new, his pardon is ever ready, and his tenderness ever so gentle. Indeed, as Jesus is gentle with us, may we show this same gentleness and patience towards one another. And all for the praise of God's glorious grace given to us in his Son. Amen. Let us pray.